0: Well, last month it emerged that Nestle's Australian Head of Media, Data and Content was heading off to headquarters in Switzerland as the global media lead reporting into a global marketing team, which seems to be getting a real makeover. Nestle's new global CMO, Aude Gandon, has been in the chair just 12 months and was lured from Google, where she was global managing director of brand. Prior to that, she spent long stints running the Nestle global account at Publicis and beyond. But there's change in the wind at Nestle, and given so much is happening in the media world, we thought it was a must to get the parting thoughts from Antonia Farquhar as she jets off to the Swiss Alps. Uh, to do some skiing and hiking I assume. We'll find out. Might be some media in there too. Antonia's been across a broad scope of programs at Nestle including some really interesting work creating demand for Nestle's direct to consumer solutions and the all important plans around data. She's also been running content and we'll get to her thoughts on in-housing and aligning with external production studios. Nestle has something like 37 of them globally and hopefully we'll get her thoughts on the future of creative agencies. So welcome and goodbye Antonia but before you do say goodbye and jet off, let's hear some parting thoughts. Tell us, what is it you'll actually be doing in Switzerland, as I said, apart from skiing and hiking?
1: Yeah, apart apart from the, the good stuff, I'm joining the global media team over there. So they really focus on progressing the media transformation um, journey within our global network so it'll be things like working closely with the global agency partners that we have trying to foster better and more consistent outputs um, and then internally with media leads so the equivalent of me and in, in each market that we have to establish best practice and, and sharing and identifying new opportunities as well as they come into the market.
0: Well, let's break down. We'll get to some of the, the forward looking observations you'll have about the global market shortly, which will, you know, in, in 12 months' time, I'm putting my hand up already and saying, let's talk in a year because you'll have some amazing observations by then about what's going on in the world. But Dan, in terms of the Australian uh, role, your Australian role, let's break it down because you have quite a big remit, right? There's media, there's data, and there's content. I guess it's the nature of the Australian market that you're, you're across. All of those, because it's sort of a smaller market. You've got to be a, a generalist and a, an expert on all of them. But let's break down data first. So, data is part of your remit, um, no doubt. You're sort of racing to build, you know, first party data assets, as, as as many are. But what in the data side of it, Antonio? What did you start out doing? What was the what was the remit first up? And was that two or three years ago when you got that? How long have you been over that particular part? Of the org's responsibility.
1: Yeah, my role changed about three years ago to encompass media, content, and data, which I think is super important for those three to work well together. Um, and data, particularly, obviously, it's um, it's becoming increasingly sort of a bit of a race, as you say, to to hit that first party data amount of scale. But going back a bit, when I when I first came, you know, this role um, was established, we were much more organised with brand in mind and obviously that's that would have been the way in the past that we've collected that data um, rather than behavior or demographic so that means our communications were fairly limited and very much based on um, MPD comms going out whereas over the last sort of couple of years we've really focused on segmenting that into interest-based groups um, so that means progressively profiling those consumers to understand their interests and preferences much better than before You know we're we're lucky we have products that people touch and feel food and 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 beverages so we were able to give a value exchange such as a recipe or a sample to try and enrich um and encourage that further um what this i guess the other part that we that we have is really unique is leveraging the scale of our business so we we touch people all the way through from you know when they have a baby or or adopt a uh, kitten or a puppy all the way through to kind of that you know more more depressing but end of life stage where, where you might need a supplement in your in your diet
0: well that's me approaching that one <laughs> well
1: let me get you some samples <laughs> <Yes>. uh, for <laughs> something like uh, a right i think the power of our data is actually not segmenting it by brand but actually people shop across the range of our products so how can we strengthen it by um segmenting it in that way which gives us a much richer opportunity to communicate with consumers
0: it's fascinating so you you know Whether it be a Kit Kat, Milo or as you say infant formula and, and, and what goes on in terms of that early stage, you've got all of that prior to it was all around the brand in isolation and now it's actually working out who actually might shop across all that portfolio in their life stage. Is that what you're sort of suggesting is going on now?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So just, just segmenting people more around their life stage and their preferences versus, you know, I've put my hand up to to like Alan's lollies, for example. So yeah, it's, it's a much richer way and it gives us a lot more depth in terms of that communication. And through doing that, we've seen our engagement rates significantly increase and also increasing our total first party data as well, which is obviously um, the real point of the matter that we're doing here.
0: Yeah, so has it shifted how and what you communicate what channels you do how you say your tone um, or is it just broadened the sort of content that you're producing what, what what's the big observations the result of shifting from brand to sort of life stage if you like
1: it's impacted a lot of changes to be honest so one of them is absolutely the the type of content that we put out there so it's a lot richer and it's a lot more value um, for the consumer at the end of the day which is which is you know obviously what we're here to do to drive that loyalty to our products um, Um, But the other one is really having the ability to use that first party data and push that into other um, platforms and publishers to actually reduce the reliance on that second and third party data that we were buying more of before. Um, And from that, we're seeing much more impactful results, which is you know obviously what we've, what we've been hoping and, and aiming for for the first place. So an example for you would be um, with Milo last year we did a personalised tin where you could put your own name on the, the tin of Milo for Christmas as a gift and you know the majority of the revenue so actual sales results from that direct to consumer piece that we did came through people that were already with, engaged within our first party data so either via the website or via opting into to milo emails so we're seeing the effectiveness come through with actual results so that gives us a lot more confidence to invest um further in this space
0: did you use other partners to promote that personalized 10 because I know my boy would absolutely love it. But so I think we talked earlier, uh, Facebook was a great platform where you were able to use your first party data in another platform. And it was a great revenue uh, channel for that particular um, program. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We invested. We pushed our first body data into the Facebook platform, and that's yeah, that that's how we were able to measure the amount of revenue and the amount of people clicking off to the to the Milo website and and obviously sharing and and tagging and commenting their friends um, to kind of personalise their own tin. So that was a really successful program.
0: And I know you're not going to tell me, but how many did you sell?
1: <laughs> exactly, I can't tell you. <laughs> it's very <laughs> successful. So watch out for it again. I would say.
0: So was that your? That was that your? First year here doing that in Australia last year.
1: Yeah, that was the first year we have done it in retail um, before, but this was the first year that we did it via uh, our own website on DTC. Yeah,
0: and has it been done anywhere else in the world?
1: Not as far as I'm aware.
0: So it was an early, it was an Australian initiative then that went quite well. Yeah, it's and gone, that's it's- why you're getting to go skiing in Switzerland. <laughs> oh, that was a bit, that was a bit uncalled for. I'm sorry, but it was. So it's, it's really interesting that that personalisation, and I'd love to get more into the sort of the direct to consumer play now we might as well because you've got that in an in an e-commerce and an online context but you've also got retail stores kitkat stores and so forth in in Melbourne and Sydney how how what are the learnings there with with what you've been doing
1: so yeah overall um some great learning so we first launched our pop-up uh, kitkat studio in 2015 so uh, a while ago now and what we did was you, we used that um to assess what customers really wanted to ensure that you know when we were to do a permanent store you know first of all it, can we do a permanent store? Is the is the hunger and craving there from consumers? And then once we do that, what does it look like to really create that wow factor for us? Um, obviously, it, it's never going to be a replacement to retail channels and our and our key customers there, but it is a way of us being able to incubate high, I guess, valuable innovation concepts um, and products that are really differentiated and personalized. So again, <laughs> in a personalization uh, journey, so you can go into Kit Kat, you can choose the type of chocolate that you want, um, you can choose the different flavors that you want on that bar, you can choose the packaging, you can put a name or, or whatever on the box as well. So it's becoming a real gifting occasion to yourself or, or a friend or whoever. But it just allows us to have that, I guess, insight into how, or well, direct insight to how consumers behave. Um, and again, And when we're doing product innovation, what a great opportunity to have our own store. So we've got one in Melbourne um, and we opened one up in Sydney um, last year as well. So, um, so far, super successful for us and, and just giving people a different experience of that
0: brand. And I know you, you, know, we've had COVID so that messes everything up but I, I guess I was going to ask in terms of the store uh, in Melbourne which has been there for a few years, traffic and, and, and footfall coming into the store, is it holding its own? Is it increasing? I know you're not going to tell me the number but um, is it is the trend line uh, upwards?
1: I mean it's, it's, it's been there for, for a couple of years now so that's, that's always a great sign but I'll tell you something more I, no. I find more interesting and, and obviously it's – Um, a testament to the success is that the the stores around the Chocolatory are some of the highest grossing stores for our classic four finger Kit Kat Bar. (laughs) So that tells you that the experience and, and obviously that Keeps the brand top of mind and, and increases that awareness and consideration, and that's ultimately, you know, what we want. That's our highest selling one. So, yeah, it's a, it's, um, it's fascinating. So people
0: are walking past your store and not necessarily going in, but then going, ah, oh, I feel like a Kit Kat, and they are going literally to other stores around there to get it, but not to the Kit Kat store. It's just a reminder, right? As you say, it's a, it's a mental, mental reminder of, um, I feel like one.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's fascinating. And, um, Kit Kat is, or chocolate is very much an, an impulse purchase, right? So the more you can keep it top of mind, obviously it's helping to drive the um, the kind of equity of the brand overall, which is awesome.
0: So, Antonio, what, in terms of the direct-to-consumer, it's kind of early, but it's really interesting for, a, you know, what has been a packaged goods company or a consumer goods company that doesn't necessarily have the relationship direct with their customers it's usually an intermediary like a retailer and um, so forth it's it's this is the way that you start to help build also your first party data right now i just want to get back to that that um that whole data play because you know 3 years ago it was quite I assume you know it is. It was very fortuitous that you landed that gig then, because obviously maybe we didn't quite see what was coming at us today. But what is the priority there to build out your first party data? Is it all this stuff? What else are you trying to do that expands your your, your customer database uh, that you own yourself rather than buying in or trading?
1: I think overall our main premise is to is to increase that first party data, and, and we've been employing um, a lot of different tactics uh, over the last year. I mean, COVID was a you know, it was a great example. Um, we had um, a lot of uh, different tactics out there and, and lots of different um, comms. Um, out there at the time because, you know, people were really coming back to our brands. A lot of the brands that were kind of known and were a lot of comfort to people got, got quite a resurgence last year. So we had a great opportunity there through a lot of programs we did to reconnect with consumers. And the opportunity now really is to make sure we maintain that engagement and, and we, we continue to, to grow that loyalty. So it's things, like I said, with, um, you know, giving people a chance to sample our products or, and just, um, you know, basics and making sure that our websites um are are really um attractive and, and have a really obvious value exchange for people to want to give us our data because you know you've got to keep the sh- consumer at the heart of what you do at the end of the day to ensure that they're going to continue to to want to engage with you as a business.
0: How concerned are you about the end of third-party cookies? Are you Is it Nestle at least here or whatever your operations are? Do you think you're third-party cookie ready or ready without them? Um, do you feel comfortable that you'll get there? Because there's a lot of companies that aren't so comfortable with that. They're sort of now really sprinting hard to sort of work out what they do.
1: I think if I was working for... Um insurance or for uh, you know a clothing company that really heavily relies on 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 retargeting you I'd be panicking about what what my new um activation would look like in market we're in a business of of really building brands for the long term and just keeping top of mind so just how can I remind you um you know to to enjoy that brand and, and its attributes better so for us we're about effective reach and frequency and and staying top of mind i think i think the challenge though for the for us and and obviously the industry as a whole is is how do you measure that across all of the different platforms and at the moment there's not one system it's very very segmented across the the ecosystem there's many walled gardens there's obviously different systems um for measurement across different channels you know, with TV, radio, cinema, out of home, etc. But at the moment, to do any kind of measurement, it seems to be more on a project basis versus an actual setup system in place. Um, and, I, and I was listening to your podcast the other day about Project Origin um, in the UK and
0: oh, cross media measurement, yeah,
1: yes, absolutely. And I think that's the challenge, right? Because if that's going to be able to to understand and, and more allow advertisers and brand builders like us to more effectively reach people, reduce wastage, um, and, you know, increase the sophistication of the media buying. That's really what, what we're going to need pretty quickly going into the future. The cross-media measurement is, is the sort of missing part at the moment to, to pull it together. And even, even though it is just starting with um, TV and video, I think that's the best place to start um, in terms of understanding that, that screen buying and, and how it impacts it all.
0: What have you been doing in the meantime? Because it doesn't exist yet in terms of cross-media. So the proxy for that, your best proxies, Antonio, uh, have been what? What have you been relying on to, to give you some sort of steer?
1: We do um, market mix modelling for our major key brands. Um, so that really helps us understand short... And long-term ROI, and it's—I believe—it's super important to look at both. Um, obviously, we're, we're building for the long term. We've been around for 150 years, so um, that's that's one part that we use to measure all of our different channels and, and all the different tactics within those channels as well. And that includes, you know, everything from sampling to to stories on Instagram to you know a 15-second on TV. Um, but the other part of that is obviously um, brand health. Um, Measurements, so long-term tracking of brand I love or brand I prefer to buy, etc. So just keeping those constant measurements in place, doing them on a regular basis versus a one-off dip, just allows us to be as sophisticated as we can in terms of measuring the impact of the communications that we put out there. Um, You know, I I really see media media metrics as very, very soft. They're very indicative, but but we'll always go back to actually what's driving business results, and that's that's where I think market mix modeling and brand health tracking are the the key at the moment, as far as we are.
0: Before we get onto sort of the, some of those other themes, uh, content and, and media and platforms a little bit more, in terms of the costs where data is going, you've got a, a few concerns around the, the cost of data, the future cost of data, and is it going to rise? And is it linked to you know consolidation um, in terms of the data players? So just talk us through there, through that a bit. What do you want to see? In, what are your concerns there are that um, is what. I won't put words in your mouth.
1: Um, I think I think the concerns are that um, with the loss of the cookie, the data richness will become more and more important to, to advertisers and and we're definitely not alone in that sort of conundrum of, of how much to, to play there. I think um, we do a real mix of sort of audience-based targeting and, and affinity um, also with purchase data as well as demos. So we do a real mix. We don't rely heavily on one data um, set versus another and we measure all that as well so we understand what's driving again business results from that so that's that's super important i think there'll be a tipping point so i think if the data costs do continue to increase or or increase significantly and and the tech costs that are often associated with those there'll be a point where the roi just isn't there Um, i think for us we have we have categories that are more reliant. So, um, for infant formula, for example, there's only a certain amount of parents in the market every every year that are having a baby and, and are coming into that kind of toddler category as well. Um, so that's that's really important.
0: So, what, what are we talking? A couple of hundred thousand there uh, babies a year? Is it? That...
1: I think it's around 120 thousand every year. Right. So yeah, super.
0: Super small. Smaller than small. I thought, to be honest. Just
1: stuff like that. I, I think I think it's worth ensuring that that you are being as as targeted as possible but there's also the flip side of that right which is priming people Mm. so if you're if you're not talking to people five years i don't know three years before you have a baby that you're building that brand trust for the long term through through screens i guess more traditional screens and then then you may be able to use the digital platforms to actually do more targeting to that particular audience at that life stage so it you know you never, i'm never going to be overly reliant on that data because it's we've got two jobs to do we've got a you know top of mind awareness but then also drive conversion when that when that right time
0: is so the data costs for you at the moment where do they usually sit that that that, that is most expensive uh, or, or the, the cost the inputs there where are they primarily coming from at the moment in terms of your cost
1: there's many different ways that it comes uh, there's obviously the the kind of basic CPM then there's there's the data overlay like I said with right. consumer data um, interest and purchase data so as part of our sort of personalization at scale approach that we do at Nestle, that's about linking your content with the audience um, and, and using the data to obviously find that right audience. Um, and that's where we have seen if we invest, um, especially in things like Live Stages and Affinity, it does pay back in terms of a brand uplift and awareness. So again, it's just it's just measuring it effectively. So you know, you know how much is too much to pay um, and also, when does it pay back for your for your brand health results or not?
0: And post cookie, post cookie, we may see some consolidation. And there, you know, you're a big fan of the tech platforms, of the social media groups like Facebook, Snap, Google, and so forth. But at the same time. Some concerns that if it consolidates too much, you in the end might have to pay more than what you want to do, and that's midterm on your mind.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's got to be on everyone's mind. I I mean, the I, I I'm a big believer. I think that the platforms have a real key role to play. I I think you need to. Make sure you have a media mix across um, all of them. You know, with the established ones like Google and Facebook, but where, but the emerging ones also, um, with Snap and, and TikTok, etc. So I think, you know, I think the key is to, to uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep going back to business outcomes, but we have to also test and learn and just make sure that we are. Um, not always 100% relying on that data we've got to try new platforms and, and new ways in to make sure we're not overly reliant on the same platforms and um media channels that we currently rely on so yeah there there is a, i think there is a a concern with the with the loss of the cookie that We may become more reliant on on one one DSP, for example, versus another, because if you can control your reach and frequency more effectively through one um, versus having two um, plus other buys on top of that, that to me is a real watch out for over-reliance on one particular um, platform.
0: What do you make of the uh, competitiveness of uh, traditional legacy publishers, whether they be digital mastheads, whether they be you know a linear television going to BVOD uh, and independent publishers in and around text or whatever it might be, their their ability to uh, compete on a data front and beyond with what the the tech platforms, the social media platforms can do? Um, do you, do you see them being able to uh, step up and hold their own, or are they going to lose ground?
1: I think the awareness and the importance is is there. I think it's really come on quite a long way, um, to be honest, in the last few years. So that's a great step forward. I I think what the um, what the Publishes and offers is that real cultural currency, right? So you have to be and you want to be around what's happening. Um, so, you know, I think that's a huge opportunity for brands like ours to be a part of of what is happening, get your brand talked about. Um, like last year, for example, we did, um, uh, you know, a partnership with Starbucks Fine Espresso and The Bachelor and that was to really get into a different audience for us a slightly younger audience and get people talking and seeing seeing the brand because it was a, a launch um and i don't you know that sort of stuff is to me it's irreplaceable um and and you've got to keep that sort of real real top of mind integration with what's happening and what what's What's now um, versus always relying on, I guess um, that that highly targeted piece as well. So it's a real, I think it's a real balance. I, I don't. I think yes, yes, there's a battle in terms of investment across those areas. But I think what publishers can bring is that editorial mindset and that that cultural currency that you can't get from you know just investing in platforms platforms like YouTube um, and Facebook. so
0: Where where much of it is user-generated content, right? Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly.
0: Now, some you you mentioned earlier as well that some might be surprised about this, but you actually sort of in terms of when I was trying to get a little bit more out of you and and, and how the publishers are faring, you said, well, you gave an example of of News Corp having really rich data layers and some might be surprised by that coming from News Corp, but explain a little bit there.
1: Yeah, I I think they're a a real key player in this area. They have, you know, so many different... um, websites in terms of different um, contextual um, and also different audience learning so they they've really um, put quite um, I think they've they've put a really good data to play together and I think they're um, you know they're always someone that we would include if we were to do a, um, a data partnership to understand how we could reach that particular audience looking at the demand moments um, where you know what 's the size of that audience it 's always fairly sizable you know you 're going to be around you know editorial um, um you know content that it that is there sort of um you know, I guess it's, it's associating with the, with um, areas that we feel are um, more premium, I guess, for those, those sort of brands that we want to be around. So, yeah, absolutely. I think they're a key player in, in terms of their reach and, and their sophistication and, and what they're doing in this space. Absolutely for us. It
0: makes so sense. how how do you do that though, Antonio? As 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 you want to aggregate lots of different data points at scale, because a lot of things I hear is that you know even in the pub, in the premium publishers environment, there was an attempt at one stage for all the publishers to get together to build a central data um, sort of repository that would make it easier for, easy for for big companies like yours to say, okay, here's a one stop view, view and an access point to all publisher data. There's still competitiveness within it when you start doing this sort of stuff by publisher. Does it become more onerous and high touch and therefore more expensive to start to manage multiple relationships like this across publishing, different publishers, as opposed to a big? Google or a big Facebook that have just a one stop and a huge amount of data is that does that become diff- more difficult and expensive if you like to do that even from nestle 's perspective
1: i think i think you 're right it 's often a little bit harder it takes a bit more time um, and a, the scale i guess is is so easily there for those other major platforms but I think again. It's about the the quality of the content that you are around, and again your're another another podcast I was listening um that you did recently around the quality of digital content being two times more impactful you've got to take that into account so you know you do you do get your, get what you pay for if you, if you're going to invest a little bit more to be around content that is higher quality and it pays back then absolutely like it's worth it's worth the um the investment in time and finding the, those right audiences on there and, and understanding what works
0: for our brands as well. Now, I'm, I'm conscious we're going to run out of time. There's one more area we just got to touch on quickly, which is uh, content, which is part of your remit here as well. You, you have in-house some of your content capabilities. You've got, a, you've got creative agencies you deal with and you have a sort of an, a, a production house or a production partner as well. In, in a nutshell, tell us what Nestle's position is on doing content in-house, what you've done, partnerships, creative agencies, the universal theory and everything thanks Antonia
1: <laughs> no problem in a nutshell uh, <laughs> yeah, easy easy <laughs> uh, well I, I think we realised during you know Covid last year when when kind of major production had to had to shut down and we had to adapt really quickly we needed to be out there um, you know letting people know that our brands were still in stock etc um, so we found ways of doing this through lots of different methods actually which was super interesting and we saw really good response from our, from our brands so we didn't I didn't want that to be lost uh, you know when this, this year luckily in Australia <laughs> um, we, you know we're, we're in a, a fortunate situation when we can all see each other and, and shoots have gone back but um, I wanted to make sure that we didn't lose that essence of, of having that more editorial mindset and doing um, work that was not 100% polished. So what we did is we've established a local um, content studio. Um, That's a team of people from um, the Hogarth group that sit within our building. So they're essentially part of our team. Um, And they're there, what we call, um, they're a team of slashies. So they all have multiple roles and multiple skills, like a shooter, editor, etc. And so they're able to quickly connect with the brand teams about what content needs um they need um and then we can shoot that you know we've shot some stuff we've shot some recipes in our own kitchen downstairs to be honest and we needed something quickly turned around for magi to do a lunar new year and that was done within sort of 48 hours sometimes it's a quick um vo adapts from some global work that we've got and a lot of the social assets um production so it's for us it's a it's a test and learn we're in a we're in a pilot phase this year um but but so far the team are extremely busy um so it's a great sign that that the model is starting to work but it's more of that sort of lower um faster faster work and like i said not not completely polished so more shorter-term thinking.
0: So that's the in-housing bit. What's well, sort of like a hybrid in-housing because it's still got, what, Hogarth in there somewhere. They're sort of managing the team. If they, uh, uh, Is that what, how it works?
1: yeah so that so they sit within within our team in the nestle building sort of five days a week so they're within our team and and they are um retained by us and and the businesses interact with them
0: and how have you judged or what are the kpis for success on that in year because it's year one you're talking about now right yeah so what did you want to see have you have you have you met expectations exceeded or a bit more work to do
1: you know we're, we're four months in oh
0: it is yeah it's really young then right yeah okay
1: really young here and we wanted to we wanted to make sure it was tailored for our local needs and and that's why we we sort of did a very very quick um pop-up one during covid last year because there was so much quick work that needed to be tailored so I mean for us it's about speed and efficiency and, that, and having that editorial mindset so how can we quickly respond to what's happening again culturally to get our brands um, talked about and, and remaining relevant to what's happening.
0: So that's that you know fast and furious sort of end of it what happens between that and the big polished TVC but between there there's a whole bunch of other content requirements and needs what's taking shape there is that changing up as well?
1: Not so much. I think um, with the major creative agencies, they obviously still have a hugely important role for our brands. They are the brand guardians. You know, they're, they're globally aligned agencies and, and they do that really high um, strategic thinking for the long term of our brands. Um, and then Content Studio, like I said, is very much for that sort of short term, quick, fast paced turnaround. Um, so that's that's how the responsibility is divided. But yeah, absolutely. The, the future of creative agencies and our brands is is super important so it's just it's just content studios fulfilling a slightly different need um, because there's obviously a lot more platforms and um, time spent so so the content need um, and the amount of assets is has increased significantly over the last couple of years and it's really keeping up with the pace of that change
0: so, final question. I'm going to let you go overseas. That's very kind of us here. In your global role, Antonia, what are what was the primary remit? What's the what will be the focus in the first twelve months? Because you're a global media lead, right, for for Nestlé.
1: Yeah, yep. So I'm going into um, a global global role over there, um, which will be. I think very different but very interesting one part I'm super excited about is just working with lots of different markets. I'm originally from Europe, so sort of connecting back into to some of that again will be really great. I think, um, you know, key challenges, obviously the, the COVID situation is quite diff- different over there than here at the moment, luckily for us and, and for me not much longer. But um, I think it's, there's a couple of challenges around uh, people, I'd say in regards to agencies and just ensuring that people and, and you know agencies notoriously have quite a young um a young average age so how do you keep people like that really motivated and feel like you know they're doing the right thing within that organisation um, when the way of working is significantly different to how it was. You know when I was when I was in agency a long time ago. Um, so I think that's a you know people and, and retention is going to be a real a real challenge and a real focus. And part of my role is to to you know foster those global agency partner relationships and, and understand you know how can we retain um, the the team the best team that we have. And I and I'm, I don't know what the answer is, but I think it's a real challenging. Challenge for agencies at the
0: moment, but there's talent wars everywhere at the moment, and, and certainly in agencies on, and and any agency um, that's happening. But it's also I'm hearing starting to sort of creep across into into client side and brand side as well, where teams, client teams, as marketers and marketing teams, they're also now working hard to keep their people as well. Telstra was one of them that was put their hand up and said, you know, it's a real it's a real challenge at the moment. Do you see that too on the on the brand side? Or not just with Nestle, but across the board, there is a real talent war on or or an, a, a, a big challenge to keep talent?
1: I think people, you know, generally come to the and they stay for, for for quite a while, which is, um, you know, a testament and then very different to, to how I, I remember agency life being. Right. When I see and hear that from agency, it does seem like it's there because... You know, a lot of the agency life was really, I remember it being very much work hard, play hard. And if, if there's not a lot of that happening, it's, it's a really hard way to retain. And, and maybe people don't want that these days. Maybe they want more purpose and, and understanding what they're doing for the long term with their role. I'm not sure. I think in um, brands are ambition and, and our I guess our long term horizon for the marketing team is to just ensure that we continue to do progressive marketing that makes the team proud. And and how do we make sure we celebrate that and continually signpost the the um, the efforts and, and the progress that we've really made over the last sort of three or four years within that community. So that's the aim that we have here.
0: Well, I promised I wouldn't keep you too long because you have a lot to do. So I'm going to come good on that and say, Antonia, great to chat. Let's update, you know, in six, 12 months. It'd be great to have you come back and tell us what, you, what you've what you seen at a global level. I think that's interesting and important for us to, in Australia, hear what you're seeing. So um, stay safe and enjoy. Go global, go gold.
1: <laughs> I love that motto. I'll take it with me.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Thank you. See ya.
0: This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre, that's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.